This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. My name is Michael Shapira. I'm a professor of computer science here at Hebrew University. And I also uh, head the German-Israeli Cybersecurity Center here. And my research area in general is uh, various aspects of communication networks. We have the internet as we know it today. Uh, uh-huh. And communications work, basically. You send an email, it gets there. You surf to a web, you get the content. What are the problems that you're researching and trying to solve? Yeah, so I think I, that that's actually a very good point. There's a, a fascinating paper by um, a professor at UCL, University College of London, uh, called Mark Handley, called The Internet Only Just Works. And, and the point he's making is that it's true, the internet works. And, and to a large extent, it does what we want it to do. But it's ex- extremely fragile in the sense that it's very insecure, it's suboptimal, uh, it gives you suboptimal performance regardless of how you define optimality, it's unpredictable. So there's a lot of problems when you look under the hood, and there's a lot of things we would like the internet to do better. So for example, you wouldn't do a brain surgery on the internet, right? There are certain things you realize it's not reliable enough to do. But of course, there's bigger problems than that for like the many security incidents we see all the time. So what my research does is is try to analyze these vulnerabilities and these problems and try to fix them. And the issue is that fixing them is no longer as easy as it used to be. Why is that? Because in the 80s, the internet was a pretty small network owned by uh, the United States and, and let's say various friends. Right. And nowadays, it's a huge network that's dispersed across many different political and economic entities. And anything you want to change requires quite a bit of coordination. And the question is not only what should the internet change to, but also how does one go about changing it? So the problem is, if one country decides to fix the internet and other countries don't agree, they either won't fix it or will have separate networks. I think that's exactly the issue, that the, the term internet is, is really literally internet between networks. So that's what it was designed to do, to provide a, a mutual language, a lingua franca across the board. And the, if I change to a new technology and I start sending things based on whatever algorithms or protocols or technologies I devised, but it's not accepted by anyone else, then what that means is that I'm effectively disconnecting myself from the rest of the world. So let's say the um, law that uh, went into effect in Australia, where service providers have to uh, install backdoor in um, software products and services, that would make it problematic to communicate with Australia, with Australian services, because they would have maybe different protocols, different rules, different ways of uh, sending and receiving information. So I think that kind of thing you can still do and preserve connectivity. I mean, it might, there's the question of whether you should do it, right? But you could definitely do it. Um, I'm talking about a, a layer that's even underneath. Here's one issue that I've been working on extensively in the past decade, which is um, securing internet routing. So the issue is, today the way things work is, say you're Google, you own, uh, it's, ter- it's termed a, a block, 
a block of IP addresses. So that's internet addresses. Think of these as phone numbers. So this is what identifies your devices. And if someone wants to reach you, the Google servers or whatever, then it has to send to these internet addresses. And the way things work is you need to advertise to the world your internet addresses. And this information propagates onwards across the network. So I'm Google. I say, hey, I'm Google. I own this block of internet addresses. And I expect my neighbors to say, I'm whomever, AT&T. I have a direct route to Google to this set of internet addresses. If you want to go there, go through me. The DNS system. The, the routing system. DNS is, is about mapping addresses to names and vice versa. So when I type google.com in my browser, I want my computer to learn what the right internet address to send to is, right? But let's even assume that worked perfectly. So now you know where you want to go, how right? do you but how do you sure actually you get, get there? there? Exactly. So there, there has to be some, some systems. You can think of DNS as the internet's oh, phone oh. book, right? And uh, routing as the internet's Google Maps or Waze, right? I may type in the right address, but if someone led you to my basement instead of the National Library, then, then uh, that's an issue. So I'm focusing more on the routing aspect. Uh, as a layman, I'll, I'll say the system works unless somebody tries to break it. It does work. I do get to Google. It does work, but you'd be surprised how often it's broken. So the issue is everything I said so far was based on trust, right? So I, I'm Google and I advertise my correct block of internet addresses to the world. And you assume if you're my neighbor that it actually does belong to me. And if I'm your neighbor and you tell me that you have a route to Google, I assume that you actually do have a route to Google, right? And, and that it's exactly the route you specified when you advertise the, uh, the route. So all of this is based on trust. So what prevents me as Hebrew University or some you know, nefarious entity from advertising Google's internet addresses and, and attracting all of Google's global traffic to my network? That would be the certificate, the uh, public and private keys of the organizations. So in an ideal world, you'd be right. But in the routing system, this is at best almost not deployed. So, so the, the answer, sadly, is that almost nothing. That is, I can make Amazon or Google or a country disappear from the internet, at least, by uh, advertising its internet addresses. So say I wanted to make google or amazon or a different country disappear the way to do this is actually alarmingly simple so what you would do is you would configure your own router that advertises routes to the outside world from your organization to advertise internet addresses that belong to another and what that would cause is it would cause others to perceive you as the legal owner of these internet addresses because as i said the underlying mechanism is trust so if I advertise them, surely they're mine. And then if I try to go to a website and I go through you. I get you, the traffic. And you can show me whatever you want. You can show me a fake site. So that's a, that, that's a good point, right? So why would I do this? So think of all the reasons why stealing your phone number might be a good thing to do. So for example, one thing. If I, I try want... to log into a service and I'm actually doing it on your site, I'm giving you my credentials. That's right. So one issue might be me wanting to impersonate someone else, right? So if I can pretend to be Bank of America or Bank of England or Bank Lumi, but just by you know, 
attracting traffic that's supposed to reach these banks, then surely I can also post a web page and uh, manipulate people in various ways. But there's other things. Firstly, maybe I just don't want you to be able to communicate. So think of the scenario where I diverted all traffic intended for to reach a specific country to a different country. Right? What that would cause is that country being unable to communicate with the external world through the internet, which is a huge issue. Uh, think of hospitals and, uh, and banks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another reasons why, reason why you may want to do this is just if you want to monitor or snoop on traffic. Uh, it's also uh, another interesting case, which is actually quite common, is sometimes I don't want to be someone else as much as I don't want to be me. So think of spammers. So if you're a spammer, chances are that at some point someone realizes you're not a Nigerian prince and blacklists you, right? But if I'm blacklisted, I could use your IP address. I could use your internet address if I manage to intercept traffic to it. And because you're, I'm assuming, perceived as a, 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 an honest internet entity, that would work. Um, and there's, there's other cases as well. So because routing is actually the, the, the reason why we have an internet, it provides connectivity between different parties across the internet. So often when you see attacks on other mechanisms, for example, Bitcoin or DNS or, or various other mechanisms, when you scratch the surface, what's hiding underneath is actually an attack on the routing mechanism. So the ways these attacks were actually implemented was by attacking routing. And how is it technically done? How can I advertise that I'm the owner of the IP addresses that actually belong to another entity? So you as, a, as a, an individual probably can't, but this is a, a game that takes place between different organizations on the internet. So think of the internet as composed of tens of thousands of organizational networks, ranging from multinational corporations like Google and Amazon and whatever, to local businesses and schools, small internet service providers like our own Bezek and uh, Hebrew University and various others. These use a specific protocol called the Border Gateway Protocol, BGP, to communicate. And BGP is tasked with establishing routes between these different parties. So what BGP does is exactly what we mentioned before. It advertises internet addresses from the different parties, and then it computes routes through which each can send traffic to, to each other entity. And if you're capable of manipulating the routing system, uh, which you can think of sort of as the, the glue that holds the internet together, this is what these different organizations use to communicate. So if you're, if you're able to manipulate the routing system by advertising, as I said, of a false block of IP addresses or advertising false routes to different destinations, you might be able to attract traffic that wasn't intended to reach you. Uh, and the way you would do this is, is by every such organization has BGP routers. So these are the routers that are at the edge of the organization and talk to routers at the edge of neighboring organizations. And th these are the ones that are running BGP between them. So if I'm able to configure or more accurately misconfigure a router to advertise false information, that information will propagate across the internet and the paths to different internet addresses that people see across, or more accurately, that routers will see across the internet will, will change according to what it is I wanted to uh, change it to. So possible solutions for this would be, 
either having a system um, similar to DNS, which is you have root servers which have a list of, uh, of addresses, or using encryption to prove your identity. So you can't misattribute IP addresses to, um, to entities. So you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and, and in a... What's interesting is that it, it hasn't been done. It's not basically uh, uh, the, the, how totally the system agree. is built. It's interesting. It's counterintuitive. It's surprising. But it hasn't been done for very good reasons. And this is actually the starting point for my research. That when you actually hear this problem for the first time, I think you have the exact right reaction. It sounds like something that uh, that has been solved already. That should be solvable with fairly little effort, and that that the solution is obvious, right? We need a secure database that maps organizations to the IP addresses they own, and then every time you're advertised the path, just check the database, right? And if the database shows you that this is a false advertisement, then then ignore it. Uh, the issue is, and I think I think that actually would have worked tremendously well in the early days of the internet, when you could actually have a flag day where you shut the internet off and then you, you pull the switch up this time with a new internet that incorporates all these mechanisms. The issue is that today, if you wanted to implement something of this flavor, you would need pretty much global coordination. So you would need some cryptographic infrastructure in place pretty much everywhere. You would need accurate registries of information that someone monitors, you would need global agreement about what the solution is. As even before the implementation issues, you would need many different parties to agree that this is the way to go and to choose between probably many competing ways of, of even realizing this idea. And um, you would need self-interested parties right, that typically can't be regulated and you can't dictate anything to. Uh, you would need them to transition to the new mechanism where it's not even clear that they have an incentive to do so. That is, it's not even clear that it's worth the bother of changing their infrastructure because of some, yes, of course, big and threatening uh, scenario, but maybe one that doesn't pertain to them or, or, or you know, frighten them in, in particular. So actually, a lot of my research is about exactly this issue. There's a huge problem, and the internet suffers from many huge problems, but this, I would say, is the biggest security hole on the internet. So there's this huge problem. And if we want to fix it, then we probably have to respect several constraints. And it's not clear when you look at the constraints that a solution even exists. So one of them would be, I would want, ideally, there should be no coordination between different organizations. I would like to be able to transition to a new solution you don't want without, to trust people you have no reason to trust yeah and it's it's not even just trust even at the operational level if what i do is conditioned on you doing something first and you doing something is conditioned on some other thing it's chances are nothing will happen that is if, if i can't make a decision and do something now chances are it won't happen so that's one constraint and there's also the issue of what does this decision actually entail does the new technology require me to replace my entire internet infrastructure or is it just something small implemented in software that I can run on top of the existing infrastructure? That's, that's a huge issue because ideally you would have something that's very backwards compatible with what you have there now and that doesn't require much effort to deploy because again, this is a 
This is my personal belief, but my personal belief is that entities are not altruistic. That is, chances are that if they deployed something, it's because it gives them immediate value and uh, it didn't require much to deploy. Uh, think of, of the hassle involved in deploying something like this, not just in terms of the monetary costs and I had to replace this aspect and that aspect of my network, but even in terms of the know-how. That is, I don't have the operational knowledge maybe to run this new equipment, maybe I need to hire people, maybe I need to contend with, with the configuration errors that happen when, you, when you're, you're introduced to a new, a new technology. But what you're telling me is probably common knowledge to many people who deal with hacking and the fact that this is not being used, abused every day, all the time and, and causing chaos is, I think that's the, the mystery. So I think it is being used every day, all the time. And we actually know it is. So there was a, a study recently that showed over a period of, I think, 18 months, they, they identified thousands of attacks. And obviously that's a lower bound because this is just what they found. But I think that one of the, one of the reasons why people aren't wrecking havoc more is uh, as an individual hacker, maybe this is less accessible to you than, than some other tools. But I think a more important reason is that a lot of the attacks we see are targeted. That is, yes, I could, you know, for, for uh, maybe uh, to, to um, maybe if it gives me pleasure, I could make something horrible happen. But a lot of times the attacker wants to achieve something. And, and a lot of times it, he wants to do that in a way that's undetectable. So, uh, for instance, in late 2013, now we know this in hindsight, but it, it turns out that there were attackers in Belarus and in Iceland that were able to divert a lot of traffic to their networks from various governmental and financial organizations in Europe and the US. And they were able to do so undetected for months. And the, the, the key thing there was that they were able to attract the traffic and then do whatever it is they wanted to do, manipulate, uh, observe, etc. But then ensure that it reaches the legitimate destination. So... So classic man in the middle. Classic man in the middle. And I'm pretty sure when you experience internet connectivity problems, your gut reaction is that it has to do with your service provider or the software, not that someone is hijacking your traffic across the world. So I think that that was one of the reasons they, they were able to do so unnoticed for so long. I can think of another interested party uh, to fixing this, which is big technology companies. And if a consortium of such companies would say, you cannot reach our sites unless you use this new solution that we've come up with. You won't have Facebook. You won't have Google. You won't have Amazon. You won't have Netflix. You won't have uh, Akamai. You won't have, uh, you won't have most of the uh, commercial internet available right. to you. Right. And as um, those companies also uh, provide um, hosting services and um, uh, platforms that would not only be those sites, but a lot of sites that they provide service to. That would be a huge chunk of the internet. And if those companies said, you cannot reach us without uh, implementing this, that might help change things faster, maybe. I think that's a very good point. There's the question of how easy it is going to be to even get these parties to agree on a specific thing and to, uh, to launch such an endeavor. But I do think that there is the internet is very different today from what it was 20 years ago, and we should take that into account. The, the structure and the, the, the types of content we see, the, the way internet paths look like. So, for example, one thing that uh, 
some of our solutions are based on is the understanding that unlike the 80s and 90s and even the 2000s, internet paths today are extremely short. But it's because Facebook content and Netflix and Google are, are typically delivered from very close to where you are. It's cached in different places. It's cached in different places. So that's why we have Akamai's and content delivery networks. And that's why these own corporations often have their own huge networks that span the globe. This is something we could exploit because the security issue boils down to securing short paths. And it's sufficient to secure fairly short paths to protect quite a lot of the internet's content and maybe arguably the more important or more widely accessed content. So I, I agree that, uh, that we have to take into account the, this new internet ecosystem, right? or the, the, the internet ecosystem the way we know it today. I would still say that if we're dependent on broad agreement between often competing parties that mandate certain things, then, then we may encounter fairly big obstacles en route to securing the internet. What is your uh, suggested solution or um, perception of such a solution? So, so going back to the constraints I mentioned before, that you would want a solution to be such that you don't need coordination with other organizations and you don't need to change too much in your own infrastructure. And I would also say that there's other constraints. For example, I mentioned this before, but I want to linger on this because you need to have incentives to be an early adopter. Right, that is typically in today's solutions, that's not the case. Maybe, maybe you only reap the benefits of deploying something after 50% or 60% of the internet deployed it already, which I would argue is a, a death blow for any technology. I believe that if you devise any type of solution, it has to be such that the first adopter, the second adopter, the 10th adopter are incentivized to use it because otherwise we'll never reach 100 or 200 or the entire internet. And the last constraint, which I think is uh, often disregarded, but no less important than the previous ones, is it has to be essentially fully automated. So one, one lesson I've learned from, from uh, working in this area is that any place where you give a human operator the ability to insert information is a security vulnerability. So even if it's an honest person just trying to do their jobs, and, and this is a security vulnerability. And, and in fact, without diving into the technical details, a lot of the reasons why we're not seeing adoption of things that were proposed over a decade ago to solve exactly these issues has to do with violating all of these constraints, including the last one. That is, people disregard the fact that a lot of what we would call security attacks on the routing system are actually configuration errors. This is actually like people inserting wrong IP addresses into their BGP routers. And as a consequence, some other entity disappears from the internet. But what people disregard is that some of the reasons that the security solutions are not adopted is because people tend to make the exact same kind of mistakes with the security solution. So if in the security solution I tell you, uh, why don't you tell me what your real IP addresses are and I'll protect you, if you made a mistake there, we encounter the same problem. And, and this even violates the do no harm principle, as it may be that the security solution is more dangerous than the problem it's trying to solve. All the constraints that you're um, showing here, it's a joke already to, to uh, talk about blockchain, but it sounds like uh, something that could be solved by blockchain. Am I um, far off? So I don't think you're far off in the sense that 
blockchains are about reaching consensus in the presence of mistrust. But I think that the problems here, they start even before the issue that the blockchain is trying to solve, which is these are problems about ground truth. That is, I claim that I own a set of internet addresses. You claim otherwise. Who's the arbiter? Who's to determine, right? Exactly. So who's the arbiter? And there, if we don't agree on that, then no distributed data structure is going to save us because it's not clear what it's supposed to, uh, what the information in it is supposed to be. So, so the problems there, I think, it's very interesting, and this is something I intend to look at more deeply, but to figure out where blockchain could fit into the solutions. But I think it's not targeting the key issue here, which is how do I certify that a set of internet addresses actually belongs to you? How do I determine that if you advertise the path, it actually exists on the internet? And not only that it exists on the internet, it's available to you now at the time of advertisement. So these are issues that are not exactly about agreeing on you know, information that's out there. It's, it's about what that information should be in the first place. How far are we from a solution, uh, an implemented solution for this problem? So I would argue, obviously I'm biased, but, but I would argue that over, over the course of the, the last few years, here at Hebrew U, we've taken a few big steps towards such a solution. And, and, and actually, it's now starting to be recognized by the uh, Internet Engineering Task Force, which is the, the body. Even a, it was even awarded the Applied Networking Research Prize for, for that. Basically, it's, these solutions is what you end up with, I would argue, when, when you respect the constraints that I, that I told you about before. So these solutions um, are such that if I own a set of IP addresses, I want you to be able to certify that I indeed own them. And I want you to be able to do so without requiring everyone on the internet to adopt some new technology. And we have a set of solutions for providing exactly this and also for addressing the false path advertisement issue. Because recall, it's not just about me saying I own Google's IP addresses. It's also about me saying, hey, I'm a Hebrew U and I have a direct link to Google in California, which is also a lie. Right? That would also make me more attractive uh, as a, an intermediate point in route to Google, but it would also be a lie. So, so we have a set of solutions that take into account both what you mentioned before, that the internet now has a very specific structure and that content has very specific characteristics that we could exploit uh, to our advantage. For example, that paths are short. That if I'm, for example, here, here's one, I think, instantiation. Suppose that um, I could guarantee something that seems very basic, only that the neighbor, let me think about how to phrase this, say I'm Google, all I want to assure you of as a, a diff an entity on the internet that wants to send traffic to me is that the last hop on the path before me, that is the organization claiming to be directly connected to me, was indeed authorized by me to send traffic to the internet address in question. Let's say that this is the only thing I want to do. Just, just protect the suffix of the path. Then one of the, the more interesting things I think we've done in the past few years was show that if you achieve this fairly basic requirement, you get security benefits that are equivalent to very heavyweight mechanisms that have been proposed for over a decade that basically boil down to let's put cryptography everywhere and change the internet from the ground up. 
but you do so in a way that even with very few adopters, you can get tangible security benefits and, and that this is beneficial for an early adopter from the very first second. So this is, this is sort of like one, one way of, of doing this. The basic problem that you found in this um, issue is the human element. The That's right. Human as a nuisance. Human as a nuisance. Yeah, I think for some reason, for us, network security researchers, or maybe more accurately, uh, researchers of the insecurity of the Internet's communication infrastructure, it was obvious always that human error is the cause for most attacks we see. So there aren't attacks per se, but it's often some random guy who inserted random information into a random system. And as a consequence, things go crazy. I remember like somebody shutting down half the internet because he, he put in the wrong command line a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, so this is quite typical, right? So we see this, this kind of phenomenon often. And it's firstly alarming how easy that is, because if, if you can do this by without trying, right? <laughs> chances are you can do worse by trying. Um, but the other thing is that we see a lot of this going on. So this was always obvious. This was always obvious just because a lot of the incidents we saw, high-profile security incidents and internet outages, were actually a consequence of someone injecting wrong information into, for example, the routing system. The thing that somehow we were oblivious to, I would argue, is that human error is also a key reason for why security mechanisms are not adopted. That is that they're, for the same reason that you don't trust the, the mechanism you're trying to fix, you shouldn't trust the security mechanism. And in the routing context, it's very evident that when you actually ask network operators, why is it that you don't want to transition to a system that's been advocated by the Internet Engineering Task Force, one of the reasons they'll give you is we mistrust, uh, sorry, we distrust the system. And, and, uh, and they're right to distrust the system because one of the things we showed in our research is that if you deploy the system, maybe you'll be protected from some attacks, but I'll tell you what's bound to happen. You'll be immediately disconnected from legitimate destinations worldwide, from thousands of such destinations, because someone there misreported its set of internet addresses. So even when using the security mechanism, the information is false and, and you're going to be disconnected because some things that aren't attacks might be perceived as attacks. So this is something that at some point we realize that we need to give much more attention to. And then the question arises, how do you certify information? What's the minimum you need? Obviously, a human must be involved somewhere in the process, but what's the minimum you can ask that human to do? And how can you verify that whatever it is that person did is actually correct? And in general, this is one thing that influenced the way I think about this problem is the understanding that it's not all or nothing. So in, in security research, often in these contexts, we think about how do I deploy a system that will make these attacks disappear, just not be feasible anymore. And I think that now that I've matured as a researcher, I think that's the wrong way to think about this problem. I think the right way to think about this problem is how do I reason about the bar that the attacker must pass in order to launch a successful attack? For example, we have a solution that maybe I won't have time now to go into, but, but to this problem I mentioned of 
correctly binding organizational identities with the IP addresses they own. And the way in which our security guarantee is phrased is, so long as the attacker can't effectively disconnect you from the internet under normal circumstances, he also can't certify a set of IP addresses that belongs to you. And I think that's actually a very legitimate and very reasonable way of doing this. Because suppose that you're Banklumi and you have one internet service provider, let's say it's Bezik. So all your communication with the world goes through Bezik. Now let's consider two types of attackers that may be interested in certifying your IP addresses <laughs> so that the world thinks that your set of IP addresses actually belongs to them. One attacker is Bezik. Maybe Bezik itself, your sole internet service provider, wants to be able to certify your IP addresses and be portrayed as the legitimate owner. The other is, I don't know, uh, uh, an organization across the world in, in Eastern Europe or Russia or China or Europe or wherever. When you actually look at these two forms of attackers, protecting from the latter is significantly easier than protecting from the former. And this has implications for the deployability of the solution. Because if you were to tell me now, protect from someone who, and this, these are most of the attacks we see, are of the second form. Because I would argue that if Bezik does this, that it tries to certify your IP addresses, that's the dumbest attack in existence. That is, there's an entity that's already intercepting all of your traffic under regular circumstances, and for whatever reason, it decided to expose itself to my system, leaving traces in the system of it trying to falsely certify a set of IP addresses without gaining any tangible benefits as far as I can tell. Okay. So, but the issue is that today, the solutions that people have been advocating are trying to address both of these issues together. And consequently, they're not deployable because you would need very heavyweight mechanisms to distinguish between the scenario that Bank of America is the originator of traffic and the scenario that Bezik is the originator of traffic because to the outside world, these two scenarios look exactly the same. So this is another observation that we're trying to exploit, that protecting from an attacker that's not capable of intercepting most traffic to you under regular circumstances is significantly easier than, than protecting from, I would say, the usual suspects, which are not your, your single ISP. We have a little time left. Let's talk about time. Let's talk about time. Okay, that's, uh, that's something I've been... Uh, exceedingly interested in, in the last two or three years. So I don't know if you ever gave this thought, but chances are that your smartphone now and my smartphone show the same time. And this is not incidental. Synchronized swatches. Synchronized swatches, precisely. So this is not incidental because um, suppose we bought two smartphones that showed the exact same time a year ago, and both were disconnected from the internet for a year. We turn them on or, or we, we look at the watches and we ask ourselves, do they show the same time? So it's quite likely that they don't. And the reason they might not is because there was nothing in place to synchronize them. And every clock has a local drift. It may be running more slowly or more quickly than a different clock because of reasons like the temperature or the type and the volume of computation running on the device or whatever. Or if I time traveled. If I, if I, or uh, if you time traveled. If I traveled at the close to the speed of light. That, that is uh, very true. 
And uh, and actually, a lot of the titles for papers in this area these days play on the on the time travel issue, preventing time travel or or things of that flavor, because I think time is a, a crucial concept. So you may ask, okay, if your clock is one minute late, who cares? And and in the last few years, what we've seen and people have demonstrated repeatedly is that you should care because in hindsight, it feels almost stupid to say, but but time is important. Knowing that. Transaction A happened before transaction B is important. Knowing that something happened recently is important, but we can't agree on recently if we can't agree on time. And for instance, almost every security mechanism breaks once there's disagreement about time because a crucial primitive is knowing, for example, that you signed something cryptographically recently, that there's a timestamp. But if you did sign something recently, but my clock is five minutes ahead of yours, then things will break because I don't agree that this was done recently. So the common theme in, in my research is very similar to what we discussed before. There are mechanisms that one would deploy that boil down to replacing the internet to fix this problem. But given that we can't, what can I do to ensure that my smartphone and your smartphone show the same time without having to change the internet's infrastructure. And this is something we've been working on. We have this mechanism that we're also promoting now at the, the ITF called Kronos. Kronos is a client that you install in your own device. And basically what it does is it crowdsources queries. It crowdsources time queries. It asks different servers, not very far from you, but say hundreds of servers, what do you think the time is? And then it aggregates them, these responses, in a way that's provably secure against even powerful man-in-the-middle attackers. And, and again, this resonates the same theme, which is, sure, if you control all of these servers, right, then you'll be able to trick me. But I would argue, if that's the case, that I have a bigger problem than knowing what the time is. But if you control even a large fraction of these servers, I'll be able to show the exact time. So this is the key observation here. And we have this mechanism that if you install and I install, and this requires software changes only, then we're guaranteed to have to show times that are very close to each other. Software that can be deployed by the... Um, individual, individual client. So even you on your device. So the way this works now is that every computational device like my smartphone and my laptop and my desktop, et cetera, has this, this client. And it runs a protocol called the Network Time Protocol, NTP, with servers that are typically not very far from it to periodically update its local time in the right direction. So what we want to do is change only that part without having to, again, no coordination, right? without having, again, to, uh, to change servers and, and server software in a way that provably guarantees that you're showing the right time. And what is the problem with the current system? So the problem with the current system is that the way things are typically done is, I would simplify things a bit, but it's only really a bit. You choose a server you trust and you stick with it. And you may stick with it for a very long time. So if I was either a legitimate server, but with nefarious intentions, or a man in the middle between you and a specific server, I could just make sure that I pass your sequence of tests and then you're at my mercy. That's I actually remember a few years ago that one of the um, 
communications providers, cellular communication provider, uh, has hadn't updated its uh, daylight savings um, time on its server, on a time server. Uh-huh. So people who were clients of that company had a different hour on their phone. And most of them, or a lot of them, didn't know how to, how to set it back to the right time because they never used, they never did that. Manually, right. So I think this is, for example, what would happen if you're dependent on one party and if that party, even for... Somebody forgot. Yeah, exactly. It was a, an honest party that to be unintentionally did something wrong. So obviously, if my intention is to harm you, and because I want to break a security application or because I want to harm your financial transactions or whatever, I want to push time, just shift it a bit in some direction, then I can exploit that. And I can exploit that in a more undetectable manner because it wouldn't have to be you're an hour late. Maybe you're just three seconds late and maybe that's enough for me to achieve what it is I want to achieve. As long as that a bad actor doesn't own... Let's, let's say more than a third. Probably is if he owns more than a third, you're you're in there's trouble. a there's a research question there that we mm-hmm. need to solve. But but for for sure, if he owns less than a third, if he's in control of less than a third of say four hundred or five hundred servers that might be in different countries and in different organizations that surround you, he won't be able to shift time at your NTP client, which is what you use to uh, to show the time. And how do you take into account? the time uh, your communications takes. Ah, that's a, that's a good point. So, so NTP actually incorporates that element. So the way NTP, the network time protocol works is, I don't just ask you for the time that you see. If I say I'm an NTP client and you're an NTP server, I send a query and you tell me it's 10.05 in 35 seconds. But obviously there's a latency overhead that results from me asking you the question and then you responding. So what NTP does is it also measures that time and it takes into account the offset when computing the local time at the clock. So it says, I asked you three seconds before I got the answer. Yeah, so, say, so I'll add three 20 seconds. milliseconds ago, I asked you something. This is what you think. And then, so there's a system in place for trying to detect variability in such times and errors, et cetera. But it does take into account the, the time it takes. So you're actually me measuring time with, with the system you don't trust. Exactly. And I think that's the crucial point that you're traversing a network that doesn't belong to either you or the the person you're communicating with necessarily, or that more accurately, the server you're communicating with necessarily. And if there's a man in the middle attacker in the system, then that's a huge issue. And one thing we've learned while working on this is that um, man in the middle attackers are more dangerous for time computation than for other contexts. Because typically the way you contend with man-in-the-middle attackers is you cryptographically sign everything. So think of the routing context. If you know that I'm me and I know that you're you and everything in between is encrypted, then we're pretty much fine. That's not entirely accurate, but, but in, in, when it comes to network time, a man-in-the-middle attacker even capable of dropping communication or delaying communication without actually tampering with anything or understanding what he's doing can affect my time computation because the way I've computed time was by measuring these latencies between the different parties. So if you make the time it takes for me to communicate with you change from 20 milliseconds to one second just by holding on to a packet for most of the time, then you've already impacted the way I compute time. 
That's all the time you have left. Okay. Professor Michael Shapira. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.